gets to break the beauty of the moment after that. Thank you, choir. For John, the writer of the fourth gospel, seeing is believing. As one commentator reminds us, one of the most vivid images that Jesus uses to speak of who he is and what he represents in the lives of believers is the image of light. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The image conveys his singular role as revealer, the one through whom God's light shines and the one who illumines the meaning and purpose of human life. Jesus' use of this image has important implications for discipleship as well. Our response to the light of God manifest in Christ has implications for how we walk, that is, for how we live. Light can illuminate our path for walking. However, if we simply stare at it and refuse to recognize its power, we can be blinded. All of these dimensions for the image find powerful expression in one of John's most dramatic stories, the healing of the man born blind from birth. At its beginning, Jesus claims once again, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Then in demonstration of his role, he opens the eyes of the blind man. But as the story unfolds, it provides a deep study of spiritual light and spiritual blindness, inviting us to examine the state of our own vision. Let us turn now to hear that story. Hear the Word of God. As Jesus walked along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When Jesus had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. Then he went and washed and came back, able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but somebody like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how were your eyes opened? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought him to the Pharisees. Now it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made mud and opened his eyes. 
Then the Pharisees began to ask him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? They were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents of the man who received the sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents asked, answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time the Pharisees called the man who had been blown blind and said to him, Give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. The man answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his believers? Then they reviled him, saying, You were his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but God does listen to one who worships God and obeys God's will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins and are trying to teach us. And they drove him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had driven him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. The man said, Lord, I believe, and worshipped him. Well, we have entered the season of blurred vision. 
One of the ladies in my Thursday morning Bible study said that her allergies are so bad that her eyes have become so dry that she couldn't read the Bible. Another one is suffering from double vision and is seeing more than one of me on Zoom. And when I got home from Turkey earlier this week, my wife Amy informed me that she has scheduled her double cataract surgery for the end of the month. Her co-worker's son, a sweet and devout young lad, doesn't quite understand and has been faithfully praying for Miss Amy's Cadillac surgery. Who am I to interfere with the movement of the Holy Spirit? But our first reading, we see Samuel suffering from a different kind of blurred vision. Ordered by God to go to Bethlehem to choose a new king from one of Jesse's sons, he sees through the lens of culture and is ready to crown the oldest, Eliab. After all, Eliab seems straight out of central casting for a king. He certainly looks the part as Samuel muses to himself about his appearance, his height and stature. But the Spirit denies the choice, saying, God doesn't look on the externals, but on the inner heart and prompts him to choose David, the youngest son. My Welsh grandfather had an idiomatic rendering of this text that he told to my father every time they went into worship together when my dad was a boy. It was so imprinted on my dad's memory that he would share it with me as we went into worship, including in the accent that grandfather used. He'd say, God doesn't look at the hat. He looks on the heart. It's a great rendering of that. A reminder, it's not the externals that God sees, but what's happening in the heart. Our text from John's gospel is all about one without sight gaining sight, moving not from just blurred vision, but from real blindness to sight. Traditionally, John 9 has been part of the church's reflection during the season of Lent, the season of self-examination, and appropriately so, as it invites us to examine the state of our own vision. The story includes a wide cast of characters and thus many seats that we might occupy. So with whom do we most identify? Those to whom John 9 was first addressed saw their own story embedded and embodied in the experience of the blind man. But we should not too quickly limit our reflection, assuming our only point of identification is with him as well. As we had occasion to note when examining Nicodemus' story a few weeks ago in John 3, those of us who are sincere, learned religious folks perhaps ought to consider our affinities with the religious authorities in the story as well. Nicodemus, after all, was one of their number, and we may recognize in him and his colleagues our own tendency to too readily pursue that we understand the Christian mystery, to be overly confident in our faith-based religious knowledge so that we are not prepared to hear what is really new in the revelation of Jesus Christ. We too might find ourselves resisting the challenge of ongoing revelation. For in John 9, as in John 3, it appears 
that what we think we know can get in the way of what we see, especially if we consider our own illumination as being sufficient. As we reflect further on the intersections between the experience of the man born blind and our own experience, one aspect of it deserves special attention. That's the role of his experience that it plays in his journey to inner sight. Various people try to interpret it for him and to determine appropriate labels that apply, but throughout his interaction with them, he considers himself confident to judge and testify about his own experience. For he knows what happened to him. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Moreover, that experience that, though I was blind, becomes a lens through which he thinks about the implications of his encounter with Jesus Christ. And we see this movement through the story of, I don't know who this guy is, to he's the one who caused my sight to happen all the way to an affirmation of you are my Lord. One commentator observes, the blind man sets the one thing he is certain of, his own experience, against the standards with which the Pharisees confront him. If it comes down to a clash between what happened to him and what according to the rules can or cannot possibly happen, he has no choice but to assent to the reality he now knows. The blind man's God does not live in a book, not even the book of the law itself, but in an act of mercy that has been done to him. He is not about to give up this act for the freedom of this God to commit it, even for the sake of Moses. The blind man's understanding of who Jesus is emerges from his struggle with those who would invalidate the experience of his own life. This time last Sunday, I was worshiping in Izmir, Turkey, with Iranian Christians in Diaspora as part of an outreach foundation team. I had the privilege of teaching Bible in Istanbul to house church leaders who had come from Iran for training. But the gift was meeting people and hearing their stories of coming to faith hearing how certain they were of the mercy that God had shown to them in Jesus. Worship was a central part of our experience with our Persian friends. First in Istanbul, the seminars were marked with joyful, heartfelt worship filled with full-throated singing. A favorite memory was singing, Great is Thy Faithfulness together in, in English and Farsi together. But what surprised me most was coming to learn that part of the reason for the unbounded praise and willingness to make such a joyful noise is the reality that in country, the house churches must worship in muted voice, lest neighbors hear and report them to the authorities. Our host showed us video clips of house churches gathered with cell phones on the coffee tables as together the gathered worshipers watched the recorded services with the volume turned low. So last Sunday, as we gathered for worship in Izmir with the Smyrna Church, 
we noticed that there were three cell phones mounted on the ceiling. They were recording the service, one for YouTube, another for Facebook, another for Instagram. And the ministry of this church, filled with Persian refugees, nurtures the in-country house churches worshiping secretly. Not only does the Smyrna church, led by an amazingly gifted woman pastor, serve as the worship center and discipling source for this Persian community in diaspora, but it's also the locus of evangelism for believers back in country. They do so by producing Christian literature and programming that is beamed back home through social media sites. And it was clear that there was a strategy every bit as intentional as the Apostle Paul's for growing the church in a place where the government is trying to silence it. We met with one couple who had just been released from prison after 14 months for the crime of distributing Bibles. We met with members of the church in a rich fellowship after worship, and many provided testimony about how they came to faith. I was especially touched by one man's story. He was the father of one of the worship leaders, an amazingly uh, gifted young woman. And this sweet man had such a servant heart. One of our team had spilled coffee, and before he could even dry it, the, the man was kneeling in front of him with rags to staunch the stain and, and bring him a new cup of coffee on a, on a plate. This man told of being invited to a prayer meeting of Christians while he was still a Muslim, but went only to find some Americans amongst the Persians. And during the prayer service, he, he felt hands on his shoulders praying for him, and he turned and he looked, and it was an American, and he was filled with such anger to discover that it was an American. He had harbored such hatred toward Americans because of the war that had ravaged his country in which the United States had participated covertly. However, that night, Jesus came to him in a dream, inviting him to let go of that anger, and a spirit of forgiveness flooded his heart. He gave his anger over to the Lord and immediately felt a, 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 just a rush of light and lightness in his life. We later talked about my deep friendships with Iranian boys, 10% of my freshman floor when I started American University in the fall of 1978 were Iranian kids. And when the revolution in that country started in 79, I wept with them to see neighborhoods they knew and buildings they had been in come up with flames. Over the years, we've stayed in touch and try to find out about family members back home. And so I've carried this special love for these folks. And to be able to meet and spend time with this man was a gift. His sweet smile and spirit of servanthood will be the face I most remember from the visit. And as we embraced before our team departed, the words from Psalm 133 came to me, how very good and pleasant it is when kindred live together in unity. One of the other folks on the trip was a pastor named William Pender, a very gifted teacher and a pastor. And he reflected that the author, Donald Miller, makes this observation 
Sometimes you have to watch somebody love something before you can love it yourself. And as if they are showing you the way. He went on to write, in this immersive experience with faithful followers of Persian descent, I am being shown the way by their love. Here we have people living in diaspora, those who have had to leave their home country for a host of reasons, but their departure has mostly centered around their faith, and those who struggle to live the faith in country who face constant pressures and such love as they share as they gather in this middle ground of Turkey. Yes, love for one another, but more vital and urgent is their love for Jesus. For this even-keeled, reasonable, slow to spiritual passion, but deeply committed Presbyterian, I am humbled by the opportunity to see such love inviting me to join in. I have watched in awe the love that sustains through abusive domestic situations, through arrests, through flight from home, through cultural oppression in a Muslim-majority context, through addiction, and the list goes on and on. I listen in awe to testimonies about visions, dreams, miracles, and hearing the voice of God. In the company of these Persian Christians, what is clear through both the imposing challenges they face and the evident joy they exude in being followers of Jesus is this. They are showing me the way of love that the shepherd does supply their every need. I think about Westminster's mission statement, ordinary people testifying to the extraordinary light found in our Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you might remember that shortly after Donovan came and suggested we might use that as our mission statement, we had a session retreat, and there was a fair bit of pushback over the word testimony. Some thought that testimony was too strong a word for we Presbyterians. We couldn't find a better word, and so it stayed in there. I thought about that a lot when I heard the gift of testimonies over with those Persian friends who, like the man born blind, would hold on to the role of their experience with Jesus that allowed them to have such assurance of their inner light. And I came away thinking that perhaps in this season of Lent, we can sing with the words of the old hymn, Open my eyes that I might see glimpses of truth thou hast for me. Place in my hands the wonderful key that shall unclasp and set me free. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my eyes, illumine me, spirit divine. Open my mouth and let me bear gladly the warm truth everywhere. Open my heart and let me prepare love with thy children thus to share. Silently now I wait for thee. Ready, my God, thy will to see. Open my heart, illumine me, spirit divine. And may we in this season of Lent turn to that shepherd who supplies our needs. Jehovah is his name. And give thanks for such a gift. Amen.